Welcome to Media Path. I'm Louise Palanker. And I'm Fritz Coleman. Here at Media Path, we strive to explore and assess the vast expanse of media offerings using data gathering techniques more invasive than a Chinese spy balloon and less invasive than TikTok. In other words, we just sort of float around looking for stuff you may really enjoy until we're shot out of the sky. Plus, we bring you guests with their own fascinating media paths, such as legendary character, actor, writer, comedian Paul Dooley, known for his roles in Breaking Away, 16 Candles, and Popeye. Paul's new book is called Movie Dad. It will captivate you, break your heart, and then put it all back together again with love and wisdom. Paul joins us soon, but first, Fritz, what have you got for us? Well, we have a couple of things worth mentioning this week. First, we continue making inroads into Northern Europe. There hasn't been an invasion of Northern Europe since D-Day. As Denmark Denmark is the latest country where Mediapath is charting on Apple Podcasts in the books category. We previously charted in Norway as well, so apparently we're huge in Scandinavia. We also continue to dominate the charts on good pods, including the top 100 of all time in politics for indie podcasts. Uh, At the time of the recording, we're number 28 on the top 100 books weekly chart. I mean, seriously, 28 and a bullet. That's what we're doing. I'm very proud. Thank you for your support. And wherever and whenever you're listening, and we just, we love you for it. And finally, I'm just going to read a recent Apple podcast review. This is from Radio Boys, and the title is The Road Less Traveled. Listen to the Media Path podcast, taking listeners on the road less traveled and much more interesting. The research they must do for each show has to be extensive. Fritz and Wheezy make us laugh. <laughs> smile, and sometimes want to research more. That's exactly what we like to do. Glad to subscribe. We would be overjoyed if you left us five stars and maybe a few kind words on Apple Podcasts. Do it in Danish if you must. And we'll read your review in the future. In Google Translate. I love that. Yeah. Oh, and now, Fritz, you tell us what you've been watching this week. All right. I'm going to talk about Poker Face. Oh. It's a new series on Peacock. All you need to know about this series is Natasha Leone. End of discussion. Poker Face is a five-part Mystery of the Week series. That is Natasha's character, Charlie Cole, or Kale, rather, uh, solves a different mystery every week using her uncanny gift, which is her ability to look at somebody and know if they are lying. The producer, Ryan Johnson, openly admits this is a reboot of the 70s classic Columbo, but redesigned and fit in a streaming binging universe. Episode four just dropped. To give you a taste, in episode one, Charlie's working as a cocktail waitress in a casino, and a close friend of hers gets murdered. Charlie uses her gifts to solve the crime, which has her butting heads with Benjamin Bratt, Adrian Brody, great uh, little... Uh, roles for uh, that first episode. Every episode is a different plot with a different cast, with the only continuity being Natasha's character, Charlie, and that's a good thing, because when Natasha's on the screen, you cannot take your eyes off of her. Her raspy, cigarettes and coffee voice garnished with just the right amount of New York sarcasm, and you are hooked. Natasha got her momentum being a character on Orange is the New Black. She was also the creator, writer, and director of another successful streamer called Russian Doll. Again, episode four of the five is out this week. I believe she's working her way into major stardom. It kind of reminds me of Benji, which I used to watch as a kid. Benji was a dog, and he'd go into these people's lives, and then he'd like fix things, touch their hearts, and then off he'd go. Yeah. That's a really a good yeah. comparison. That's very retro. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Benji was making a difference, sure. Uh, I've been watching The Bear on Hulu, Fritz. Have you watched The Bear? No, I, I, know, the, I know the actor from uh, Shameless. Yeah, exactly, I love him. yeah. So following the suicide death of his brother, Mikey, fine dining master chef Carmi Berzato comes home to run his family's sandwich shop, the original beef of Chicagoland. Here, personal and professional challenges abound as he faces the relentless pressure of restaurant ownership, a tightly wound, vocally belligerent staff, and devastating family relationships drowning in the wake of Mikey's drug addiction and death. The bear is fast and noisy and urgent, and you may need to tap the volume down a notch or two when the ensemble gets into some intensely passionate differences 
of opinion. Mommy and daddy aren't aren't fighting. We're just discussing. Uh, but the show is packed with intensity and struggle and beauty and humor and cooking close-ups, if you are into that. And the first season leaves you with the resounding belief that throwing your entirety into something worthwhile is powerfully gratifying. Carmi, as Fritz just mentioned, is played by Jeremy Allen White, who you may know from Shameless. The cast is sensational. You can find The Bear on FX and on Hulu. He's really a charismatic actor. I love oh, that yeah. guy. Yeah, yep. no, he jumps off the screen. He's he's intense and, and captivating. And he, I, I think he won a Golden Globe. Oh, yeah? Either that or a Critics' Choice Award in his speech was very inspiring. Awesome. Yeah, great actor. Let us introduce our guest. We're so excited. I can't wait. Paul Dooley's career spans 66 years and takes him from his hard scrabble West Virginia childhood to the groundbreaking Greenwich Village comedy scene of the 50s to legendary TV commercials to the electric company and on to big screen stardom as America's favorite movie dad. Paul starred in Breaking Away, 16 Candles, Popeye, and he also starred in an impressive array of Robert Altman and Christopher Guest films. He was Sarge. In the Cars movies, he has been a clown, a cartoonist, and he is a lifelong student of jokes. We are delighted to have you with us, Paul. Hey, Paul. How are you guys? You're We're looking good. Good. We're good. Can you tell us one of the first jokes you learned and loved as a child? <laughs> no, I can't. Okay. <laughs> and thank you for being here. That's that's our show for today. I, I first started listening to radio when I was 12. My father bought a set. The first people I ever heard were Red Skelton, Jimmy Durante, and uh, Jack Benny. But as a kid, I didn't get Jack Benny as much as I might. But Skelton was pretty much a clown. And Jimmy Durante was very funny. I do remember uh, a joke that Jimmy Durante had a partner called Gary Moore, Mm. who served as a straight man. You Mm. remember Gary from Mm -hmm. a Gary Moore show years ago. So he was very educated, and Jimmy could barely read. And part of uh, Jimmy's act was uh, mispronouncing things. Mm-hmm. They had a hard time reading the scripts. He used to say, what a catastrophe. <laughs> <laughs> and they called the microphone the macrophony. <laughs> and I remember one of the first jokes was, uh, Gary says, oh, you know, our band leader here on the show has a, is very wealthy. He does lots of jobs outside the show. Uh, he he does uh, a big dance parties and all kinds of things like that. So he does very well. He has a big home, a mansion. He has a, a mansion with uh, um, eight bedrooms, but uh, there are no bathrooms. <laughs> no bathrooms, says Jimmy. <laughs> he said, that's right. And Jimmy says, how uncanny. <laughs> a dumb joke, but Jimmy Durante was well-loved, as you know. Well, you know, your book... And, uh, I, I love- that's one of the first things I learned. I still remember, oddly, I have a kind of a quirk in my head where I remember everything I liked till now, and I'm yeah. 95, practically. That's awesome. It, it's just something that's... Uh, I'm not in charge of it, but if I like something funny... And I must know 10,000 jokes because I never forget anything I like. That's a superpower. That's amazing. Yeah. Some kind of a thing. It's, it's like a uh, idiot savant in that way. <laughs> you know, there's a certain thing like when Dustin Hoffman knew about math and numbers, you know. Mm-hmm. It's just something in my brain that's jokes. But I remember them a long, long time ago. Oh, that's so cool. I love that. So this book, which I loved, because it's it's like a history of show business. It's, it's it's a history of the television era. You know, your 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 interest started with the silence, and we'll talk about that in a minute. And it arcs all the way up through the present. It's really a great book. But I, I think it started as a one man show, which you and I have in common. I did a few of those. Yes, and- I did it at the Hollywood Fringe Festival. Then I moved it to another theater up here in um, in the Valley on uh, Ventura. And they're just four weeks, uh, four weeks of shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the, the Fringe Festival was only three nights and it was gone. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people liked it. And uh, I looked out in the front row opening night and here's Dick Van Dyke. I'd never oh met Oh, my. Dick. Oh, my. Wow. How did you even know about this? Yeah. <laughs> well, you both love. Yeah. Forever. And he gave me a quote for the show said, I would watch you read the phone book. So he he was a fan and I was a fan of his. Well, you're probably uh, you probably had similar interests because he loved the silence, too. He loved the big physical silent comics, Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin. Yeah. In fact, uh, Carl Reiner made a movie 
with Dan, with uh, Dick Van Dyke called the comic, and he played a silent movie comedian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, Mickey Rooney was in it playing a sidekick. Wow. Yeah, so- that was uh, that was a long time ago. But I worked with Carl once, and I started reminiscing about uh, those days. He said, yeah, we were supposed to go out for three days and shoot sample silent comedies, you know, this two or three minutes long. But we loved it so much, we spent two weeks on location inventing silent movies. Oh. So we have a lot in common. And you did like- that when you were a kid, right? You made your own movies? Well, after I saw Keaton when I was 15, a friend of mine uh, has come from a family with money. My family was poor. But we... Uh, when he first showed me these guys on his little eight millimeter screen in his room, he had an eight millimeter camera. We just went out and got top hats and canes and <laughs> chased each other around town. We went to the oldest part of town, like near the waterfront on the Ohio River. And all we really never had a plot. It was very much how they did it in the old days. They improvised silent movies. There was no dialogue. I chased him. He chased me. We'd fall down and get up. And, uh, so we continued this through high school and college, and we went to New York at the same time. And we made movies there. I went out to Rockaway Beach and made one on the on the beach there. So I've always loved this stuff, and I wrote and directed the things. My my friend uh, appeared in it. He was like uh, Max Swain was for Chaplin, you know, mm-hmm. one of those big guys. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I just uh, I think I was had a former life where I lived was in vaudeville and somehow was in love with vaudeville and why would i do that no longer there but uh uh then at 80 30 years after i first saw keaton i met him and did a commercial with him yeah yikes so that meeting your gods that was, that was you, you talked about your family being poor. Let's talk about uh, your life in Parkersburg, West Virginia. I went to college in Salem and Clarksburg, West Virginia. I went to Salem College. It was a great bastion of underachievers, people who couldn't <laughs> get into other colleges when they were out of high school. But um, uh, And the only positive aspect of Clarksburg was that you could drink beer at 18 years old. That's really all I took away from it. But talk about it. You had a, you had a poor upbringing, and you made a really interesting comment uh, in the book uh, coming from marginal economic circumstances. You said the Depression really didn't affect your quality of life as a family because you were already poor. And also my father built our own house Mm -hmm. so we had no rent to pay. He was laid off from his job for three or four months and went back at half pay which wasn't much to begin with. But uh, he was a marvel because he uh, left school at, in the third grade. Uh, the teacher didn't know he needed glasses. He didn't know he needed glasses. The parents didn't know he needed glasses. So they just thought he was slow, which is code for stupid, sort of. Mm-hmm. But anyway, he had native intelligence, and he built from scratch his whole house, you know, eventually three rooms, without ever asking for help from any other person he knew. And I still marvel at the way a guy with poor eyesight can measure a quarter of an inch and build a cabinet and make a wow. plum. Mm-hmm. But he did all this. I only knew years later when I discussed it with my therapist, he said, well, from what you talk about, he sounds like he was highly intelligent, but with no education. Mm. And uh, I don't know many other people could do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, you... He dug the basement, you know. Oh, yeah. One one room at a time. Yeah. Now, you write in your book that your father never smiled. And and I and imagine that you as a funny kid kept looking into his face for that approval that wasn't there. So when you brought your father's personality to the dad and breaking away, you gave your version of this guy some humor and, and humanity, which I imagine was healing for you. Well, he never had any. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, humanity as such. He was very distant. Mm-hmm. I felt because he didn't have a father, his father left. Mm. Uh, I didn't think he knew how to be one. Mm-hmm. And, but he was not a mean man. He didn't discipline me or anything mm-hmm. like that. He just spent his life working hard in a factory and at home. He kept on working on continuing to add on to the house. Mm-hmm. He didn't talk much. Never saw him hug my mother, kiss my mother, never hugged me. But when you're a kid, you only know your father. 
right. not other fathers. Right. I thought that's what dads are. Okay. So if he never smiled, I didn't smile. If he didn't laugh, I didn't laugh. I tried to, I bonded on him. I became someone like him. Then when I started doing films, I always played him. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of them worked out very well. I just added humor to it sometimes, but I also was a grumpy dad many times. Mm. But that's uh, uh, that's what it is when you bond on someone. You I, know, I learned so much. You you are not afraid to share little wisdoms that you learned from your therapist throughout the book. And about your dad, one that I really resonated with was the fact that your therapist told you because you were seeking approval with your dad as I did sure. with mine. I think that's why I went into the comedy business. But you, th- your, your therapist told you that you think more about the parent you're not getting enough from, or you think more about the parent that you, you, whose approval you seek and don't get. And I just thought, wow, that's so true. It's exactly right. Absolutely. Uh, my mother was loving, fairly open. She had only a seventh grade education. So she was a good mother. Uh, I don't think they had a happy marriage because uh, he was so not undemonstrative. But I I learned it also in therapy. I was in therapy and also once a week group therapy. And I found in a group, the person who gets all the oxygen is the negative person who's (laughs) the most disturbed. And the other people only slightly have some slightly things wrong with them. They don't get any energy in the room because the guy who talks all the time and he's the most neurotic, he uses up the air. <laughs> and that's almost like uh, the parent you want to love you is the one that's not loving you. Mm-hmm. You pay more attention to the negative than, than you accept your mother, let's I, say. I was so fascinated mm-hmm. by that. And It's uh, a kind of truism, I think. And And the great poignancy of your life is that while you were portraying these famous movie dads, your own children had been stolen from you. That's right. And that, if there was ever an irony in anything, that's it. Mm -hmm. I became known as the go-to dad. I had 25 actors and actresses that I played the father of, (laughs) including uh, Julia Roberts and Molly Ringwald and Tony Collette and on and on and on. Uh, Sometimes I'd I'd work two days in a film and be the father. Sometimes I'd work a month or two. Uh, Wimpy didn't have any children in Popeye. <laughs> that we so know that, of. That was a departure from the fathers, but uh, I sort of got typed as being the dad, and I think the primary film that did that was Sixteen Candles. A lot of people, the producers, said, well, let's get that guy in our film because he's a good dad. But you had that scene written in because you weren't going to take the role, and you needed more, and they... and uh, Right. Yeah. John, so- called up and said, right. I love you. I love Breaking Away. That was my most well-known film. And he said, I've written a new scene, which I hope will, you know, have uh, cause you to come and join us. And I read it and it was a nice scene and I did, did the film. But it's kind of that scene that every teenage girl dreams or wishes that she had a dad that would see her the way she wants to be seen. Uh, the way, the way you know, as she's becoming a, a woman, that the way in which that, you know, she hopes that the world will see her as a lady, as a woman. That's right. Uh, and I get mail all the time about that scene. Send me a picture, sign an autograph. And before the pandemic, I meet young women on the street who are now 30 or 35, and they grew up with that film, and they just love it. So I had a fan base just through that one film. <laughs> wow. But uh, it's that... There's so many fathers that won't apologize for anything, mm-hmm. who won't say, I love you, and you're important to me, and I'd do anything for you. I think even fathers on their deathbed, and their daughter comes and says, I love you, Pop. It's the kind of a guy often who can't return that compliment. Because so many men are so defended, so afraid of showing emotion and weakness. And, and it's... They- and it's the period. I, I had exactly that situation with my father. My father suffered a really bad heart attack, and he lived in Florida. And, uh, you know, I'm an only child, and I thought I was going to lose him. So he was like a, th- a third of my identity. So I went down to Florida, and I, I, I 
went in the door of the house after he got out of the hospital. I went to give him a hug, and it made him so uncomfortable. I said, I'm just giving you a hug to tell you I love you, and I'm glad you're alive. He just didn't know what to say or do. He didn't know how to react to it. It was so outside of his experience. But he it was scares the hell out of some men. Yes, he was crusty on the outside, but inside he was mush. And I think that's he was the you know post World War II father, where businessmen had to be tough and all that. It was not only was it part of his character, is what was expected of men at that time, not to show vulnerability. Well, maybe you don't know how to. You don't have the tools to manage your emotions, and you're just afraid that if it if it starts to come out, it will pour out, and you'll be a big mess. And mm-hmm. you, go ahead, Paul. <laughs> Say a huge percentage of fathers never said I love you to their kids, mm-hmm. especially boys. Mm-hmm. So the, my experience from my own fathers being so far away from me made me go the other direction and show much more emotion and uh, love and yep. physicality and hugging and all that to my kids when I could. Well, tell us about what happened with your kids and uh, your marriage where, where you had those kids and then one day they you got a letter from their mom and they were gone just disappeared she says i'm leaving i'm taking the kids we're not coming back so naturally that's shocking but one can hardly really give it any credence because it's too impossible to imagine Mm -hmm. so i struggled with it for a long time and he finally had to accept that it was the truth and after a year or so, I had some detectives looking at all that. I think I found out later they'd gone to Europe. Uh, but uh, there was an underground into some of those countries like Denmark and Finland in the, that area that women who had uh, abusive husbands had taken underground route to go over there for you know a while to get away from bad fathers, bad husbands. But uh, so I suffered through it and came out the other end. But after about a year of looking, I said to myself, I was in the book you looked at, uh, Mm -hmm. what happens if I find them? I had gone to court and got custody, full custody, because of her breaking the marriage, you know, breaking the divorce agreement. Mm -hmm. What happens if I find them? Do I tear them away from the only mother they'd ever known and traumatize them twice? Then we would probably hate me because the mothers are so much the caretaker. I said, I just have to sit back, stay in my own apartment, never leave, keep my phone number, and hope that they'll find me. So but it took 10. Yeah, as soon as they became adults, they, they found you almost instantly. And, yeah, and 18, 18 years old. And tell us a little bit about those conversations and what you learned about what, what their experience was and what they had been told. Oddly, they didn't like to talk about their experience, Okay, as you imagine. Mm-hmm. To some extent, although they're glad to be free of living with their mother, there was a strange allegiance to her logic because she was their caretaker. And what she told them about me, and I never knew what she told me, they were reluctant to ever talk about it, even though it's been, you know, they've been with me 20 or 25 years now. But I honored the fact that they didn't wish to talk about it. And I thought I was painted as a villain. But now we we all have good relationships. But I've never spoken to her in all these years, 50 years or something. But uh, we had to overcome things. And I believe there are things in the back of their mind that's the propaganda they had against me. But they can't deny that I'm good to them. So I think they're still a little bit... Uh, ambivalent you right. know? and for them it's a process as well they're going to continue evolving and they may have questions a year from now or something to say yeah. two years from now that they're not ready to say today that's right i let it come up if it comes up but i never push because mm-hmm. if they choose to put it in the past it's okay by me mm-hmm. i really We've been back together again for quite some time my son lives here with me in burbank yeah not with me but nearby yeah and the mother uh and my daughter lives in Massachusetts, and she comes out to visit. I I was stricken by your humanity, and you just mentioned another reason why, and that is how you were so empathetic of how your daughters were feeling. It wasn't about you. Finally, you're getting your daughters back. You were worried about them and not pushing too hard on what their experiences were and letting them speak at their own pace and time with that. But also, the first time you got married... 
uh, you had gotten a girl pregnant and you wanted to do the right thing. And so you married her. She lost and, and, you know, you wanted to give the child a name, as you said, and you also wanted to avoid death by her father. And so uh, you you married her and, and then she lost the baby. But you stayed with her and you thought you would give it a go, even though you had never even dated this woman one time. You thought you would give her the benefit of the doubt and give it a try. And I thought, wow, you you you're a, you have a very strong moral center. I, I really I, that that touched me. Well, I I felt that uh, we didn't know if we were in love with each other. Having sex doesn't mean you're in love with somebody. Oh, we what? hadn't even known each other that well. We just wait. What? Should... <laughs> Anyway, uh, we talked it over. I, I married her to save face for her family, who were Sicilian, by the way. Oh, boy. <laughs> and uh, uh, between us, I said, let's just stay together through college. We'll live together. And if we choose to, when we leave here, because we both wanted to go to New York, uh, we'll just uh, stay together or we'll not stay together. But she agreed to that. We lived a very nice married life through most of college. And in fact, we did separate. We got to New York. And the funny thing is the first night, you know how scary New York could be for out of towner. The first afternoon when she got her little hotel in near Times Square and I got in the YMCA, within hours we realized we were, we were left alone and the only people we knew in New York were each other. And we quickly wanted to spend time together mm-hmm. because... It was too scary not to. So we were always friendly and briefly got together again and lived in a way where we were fond of each other and got along without really being committed. But she had a big career and I began to have a, a career and mine were mostly from commercials. And talk I was a white wasp, you know, <laughs> the guy who could buy the product, sell the product tell his neighbors about the product. But I think you were maybe that guy that walked into the audition and showed them something even beyond what they had written with your with your ability. And so talk yeah. about some talk about some of that cuz you kind of like set the template for, you know, how things were going to be sold to post-war housewives in the suburbs. Uh what I discovered is that uh, big ad agency J Walter Thompson was one of the biggest they would have tons of products, and each product would have a team of art director, producer, a copywriter. And uh, they didn't like if you changed the copy at all, but I could also work, see where I could change the words and make it amusing. But the writer in the room doesn't want to hear that. He wants to hear the words he wrote. Of course, he's been hearing them for the last two days from other actors. Mm-hmm. So I used to try to find a way to be funny before the audition and after the audition. Ah. And then they have a bunch of pictures on the table and say, who do we like? Well, who's the guy that went in the closet? Yeah, I like him. But that wasn't for the way I read the copy or I read the script. It was because I showed them I had humor. And at this particular advertising agency, there was a door to the hallway. And next to it, like as a L-shaped thing, was a door to a closet. One day I'm backing out of the room and trying to win them over on my way out, saying, <laughs> well, good luck with this. It's a very good commercial. I hope to see you again. And I accidentally took the closet door and opened it. <laughs> then they all laughed. And uh, I I extended the laugh as far as possible. Then they closed it and left. Then every time I went there again, it was a new copywriter, a new um, director, new producer. They didn't know I'd done that, but I used to do it every time. The casting <laughs> And sometimes I worked it out to a kind of art. I would go in the closet door, and I'd open the closet door and go inside and stay there. <laughs> or they'd start laughing. And the more you stay there, the more they'll laugh. But then I'd come, after, come out and do a couple of takes and leave. But I almost never didn't use that closet. So there's, you're going to say, well, the guy was pretty funny with the closet. And compared to other guys who didn't do any of that, they just, even the copy, even the, even the words weren't funny or anything, but if they remember you, if you amuse them, you know. I had me an improviser already. Oh, yeah. And no, ability and improvising ability. And the likability. I want to hear about you doing sketches on Ed Sullivan and shows of that nature. That 
That sounds really scary and interesting to me. Uh, I I had stand I did stand up for a while and did the Tonight Show in 1959 with Jack Parr. Uh, Stop right and, there. Stop right there. Yeah. Because I don't want you to go too far without me saying something. Okay. Uh, uh, that gives me you, I put you on a pedestal because you did something on the Jack Parr show that I don't think has ever been done in stand-up comedy before. You went on that show and did a piece of material you had never done before. That's and right. I, I get heart palpitations just thinking about that. How well, did that the come The average about? comedian used to say about The Tonight Show, uh, you go on the road, and it takes about seven years to know what you're doing and have a great six minutes. Mm-hmm. So it's impossible to imagine going on that show and really not having done it in front of human beings. I sort of knew where the punchlines were, but I was a very nervous. but did enjoy it. It was a weird premise. A uh, five-year-old president of the United States and how he would behave. And it worked very well. They asked me back, and you may know from the book I didn't have any more material. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I met Alan Aldo on the street, and we knew each other slightly. I said, could you help me write? They asked me to come back in two weeks. Sure, I said. Then I was going crazy trying to think, I don't have a good six minutes. Uh, I met Alan, and he's a good writer. I knew he was a writer. And uh, I uh, said, you'd help me write a monologue. I have two weeks for the night show. And we did it together, and it worked. Forget my phone. I have a landline. (laughs) But anyway, Alan is a good friend and uh, one of the nicest people I ever met. Yeah, he is. So that was the story of that show. We'll wait until your phone stops talking to you. But what about what about the sketches? Because you never know how that's going to play. You know, you're far removed from a studio audience. The laughs are different than they would be in a club. Well, uh, sketches, sketch work, I learned primarily in Second City, Mm -hmm. where you know you do routines. They're they're not a minute long. They're maybe three or four minutes. What you try to do in an improv is to do it beginning, middle, and end, even though you're improvising. Mm-hmm. But uh, I always had, I learned from uh, other writers and from watching comedians, I sort of taught myself how jokes work, you know. Fritz knows that one of the old rules is one, two, three, and three is the punchline. It's a trio. There's something magical about it. There's the Three Stooges. There's the Holy Trinity, the Father, and the Son, the Holy Ghost. And there's in all of literature and mythology, there's always this you know, three little pigs. You know. There's mm-hmm. something about it that's not just the number three. Mm-hmm. It's, it's magical in some way, which I can't explain. But it's all over comedy. You do one, two things and change up for the end, and it's funny. It's kind of like two creates the pattern, and then three is the twist. Exactly. When I was in college, I was supposed to write a thesis in my senior year, and I asked that my uh, teacher uh, advisor who was also uh, head of the drama department i said uh, instead of writing a thesis can i do an in-person speech about for my thesis he said i don't know what's it about i said my theory of comedy <laughs> and <laughs> i didn't know anything about new york comedians or new york writers but i knew enough to know what made a simple joke and so i did ex- i said exactly what you said you create a pattern and when you and the audience is led along with the pattern and begin to expect the pattern to continue, and when you twist it, that's the laugh, that's the joke. One, two, change. Yeah. And it's very magical that thing. It is. Everybody who writes or does comedy know about it. Even though, in, even though we know it's coming, we're excited. It's sort of like playing peekaboo with a baby. The baby gets 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 to know you're gonna you're gonna reveal your face, and he's still yeah. super excited when you do. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and oddly enough, you don't need step two. That's just to make th- three work. You know, uh-huh. two guys going two guys going to bar. One says this, one says that. Very similar things. The other guy says, you know, <laughs> the other guy twists it around and it works. Yeah. So early in your career, you went to West Virginia University in, in Morgantown. Yeah. And yeah. one of your classmates was Don Knotts. Yeah. And talk about him in the early days. And, and did you have a sense that this guy was so different and interesting and funny? You guys, you <laughs> this made me laugh, although there was not two lines before it. Uh, 
you guys used to go to strip clubs, but not to watch the strippers, to watch the comedy. Yeah, it was called Burlesque, and it was in Pittsburgh, West Virginia University, right at the north, right at the edge of the uh, West Virginia. So in short drive, you're in Pittsburgh. We didn't call it a strip club. We called it a burlesque. Well, we actually find them kind of boring because, you know, they were they were not nearly as sexy as women are today dancing. <laughs> the, they just did a few little moves and left, you know. They took off very little. But uh, Don and I weren't interested in that. Here's these guys doing these great sketches. So we, re, re, we relearned them on the way home, what I didn't remember, he remembered. And we used to, we couldn't do it. They were bawdy, so you couldn't do it for anybody else. We would go to do it free in uh, fraternities. And, and compared to today, they were not bawdy at all. Today is filthy now, frankly, mm-hmm. in terms of sex and jokes and language. Mm-hmm. But we'd use these sketches and be able to do burlesque, but just for fraternities. Mm-hmm. But uh, Don had done three years of uh, college, then was drafted and did two years in the Army, and they put him in special services, which means he could entertain the troops because he had been a, a boy ventriloquist when he was 13. I saw the dummy he used to work with. And uh, so he got, for two years, he got to be paid Never carried a gun, never dug a foxhole. Just in America, he went around all the places and learned from the troops. And you can do comedy every day, not not now and then to have a booking, but every day it's your job to be funny. He came home, he was a polished comedian. I remember he, Don always had a frail look. He had a, a little caved-in chest, a little humpback. And he used to talk about that. He said, uh, my doctor told me I'd have to go to Arizona for my lungs. I thought I was all in one piece. I didn't realize. <laughs> and then he said, but I have a good doctor. He's uh, very nice. Uh, he lives he's near me. He lives just a gallstone throw away. <laughs> we had his daughter on who wrote a great book about being his daughter. And she was cute. Karen. Oh, yeah. He's, and he's a very sweet man. Yeah. And then another routine he did was... Uh, a double talk kind of thing I'd never heard before or since. And he says, here we are at the big football game. And the uh, the uh, sun is uh, the sun is shining on the uh, spectator spaces. I mean, a, a spectator's faces. And everything was one of those loops, you know, yeah. uh, like a like a malapropism, mm-hmm. but just turning words. He said, oh, the uh, players down. He's running on the 20 yard line, the 30 yard line, the 40 yard line, and he's tackled on the dirty clothesline. <laughs> Were you the there when he got the, onto the field? Were you there when he got uh, uh, added to the Steve Allen show? Because I used to love it when he would come on because he was. I had gone to New York by the time, and oh. that really when people really knew him from the Steve Allen show. And every week he'd cut to him and he'd say, Are you nervous? And Don looked nervous and he'd say, Nope. <laughs> Remember that? Yeah. Yep. And they had Tom posted with one of the others. Uh, very funny stuff. And, Jen, you know, Steve Allen laughed at all the comedians. Yeah. He was mm-hmm. great. When, did, when you were kind of working your way through uh, to create a career for yourself, it seems like there's a long period of not really knowing where to step next. And then all of a sudden, st- things start clicking for you. Like, when did you realize, like, oh, I, I think I've got, I'm as good as anyone and I think I'm going to be able to make a go of this. Well, I was making $3,000 a year for nine years, which included being in the Three Penny Opera, very well received and ran seven years in New York. But I left to go to do a, a show up in the um, upstate New York where they were famous for reviews and sketches, which is where I met Carol Burnett when she was 21. Awesome. And mm-hmm. So I kept looking for areas in plays, but mainly in places where I could do comedy or something like sketches. Not stand-up, but just sketches. Mm-hmm. So every summer I try to find a summer theater where I could do something like that. There's a place called uh, Tamamut where Sid Caesar and his gang cut their teeth. Another place was where Danny Kaye started. Only two or three people in the mountains. Not Catskills, but a place devoted to sketches and, and variety shows. Uh that was a great training ground for me. 
I always seem to want to do that uh, sh short form comedy, which is uh, those sketches which are three, four, five minutes long. Mm -hmm. and I worked with Carol when she was uh, just starting out, but she was, everyone in the company said, that girl's going to be a star. <laughs> just meeting her even. Oh, yeah. And her acting. Yeah. But I, uh, I, I learned something interesting reading about your experience with Three Penny Opera. Because uh, there were a couple other famous people that did that show as well that came with you to that show from off-Broadway. Yeah, uh, John Aston. John Aston from the Adams Family was great. But I learned something really interesting. You know, that's, that show uh, gave birth to um, Mac the Knife, the song Mac the Knife. Yeah. And the, and the lady Lottie Lenya in that show is an actual a person. person. Maybe I they're all people. Maybe I, all the people in those know. lyrics are. I thought that was, was she a character in that play? She was a real Lottie woman. Lottie is Kurt Weill's wife. Yeah. Oh. And Kurt Weill is the composer. The only reason you know that she's Lottie Lenya is I think Bobby Darin or someone like him threw her name into it. Oh. <laughs> and he was naming these prostitutes. Oh. Jenny Diver. <laughs> Lucy Brown. <laughs> yep. These prostitutes. But in the record, he said Lottie Lenya. But she wasn't a prostitute in the show. She was oh. Kurt Weill's wow. wife. Wow. It's like... So Bobby I think Bobby Darren put that name out there. It was like a revenge porn song. <laughs> Very well known in Europe. <laughs> he made funny. a film of Three Penny Opera. Had, even that was based on a, a beggar's opera from England, but it was Kurt Wilde's version of it. And uh, she did it on film, and then she did it on stage, and we did it on film, and then she came to New York, and uh, she might have been 25 when she played it the first time, and the second time she's 30. And now she's 40 and she comes to New York and plays the same role. Right. Who's one of Mac the Knife's uh, lovers. We want to hear but, about, uh, Paul, we want to really hear about uh, The Odd Couple. Because you, you, your experience with, with Walter Matthau was not altogether pleasant. <laughs> no. Well, there, there are some actors who, who are selfish on stage. And the better actors and most actors are just generous. And, mm -hmm. They know a fellow actor. They don't try to steal the focus, you know. But he had a habit of, uh, there's a thing called upstaging. Mm -hmm. If you go farther back upstage, forces the actor downstage near the audience to turn and look upstage. Therefore, you see the back of his head. It's a common trick that selfish actors do. So he did that. But when I worked with him, I just, I did it one on one with him. He moved upstage, I moved upstage. Pretty soon we're at the back wall. <laughs> You're going to have to stop that nonsense. That's the way of stealing the focus. But you kind of took him on, whereas Art Carney just stopped showing up, and then you got the role. And Well, but... Art's a very shy guy, and, and mm -hmm. he never liked There was a book written about him that it was um, an, approved an approved biography. And he said, I didn't like Walter Matthau from the first day because Walter is a show-off and the uh, and, and Art just really likes to go hide in the woodwork. You know, he's humble. And, and it's amazing when you think of him working on the Honeymooners. He didn't seem shy at all. But as a person, he just was withdrawn. And he didn't want to have any hassles. He would never call him on his misbehavior. Well, finally, I took over and played Art Carney's role and co-star with him. Matt, though, then I started telling him off. <laughs> <laughs> He didn't like it, but... Uh, he used to break the fourth wall, which is an, a verboten oh, yeah. in theater. And and even Mike Nichols, the director, tried to stop him, and he wouldn't stop. He, he always did this thing he's not supposed to... See, if you break the fourth wall uh, in a certain show, it becomes part of the style of the show. Every musical breaks the fourth wall to sing songs. Mm -hmm. But normally in a play, you don't break the fourth wall because sometimes that's meant to be a landscape, a lake another wall with pictures on it or a mirror. It's understood by the audience. If you do it several times in a play, it's the style of the play. But if you do it once, it stands out like, what the hell is that? So he broke the fourth wall. They get a big laugh when you do that. But Mike Nichols told him in rehearsal, uh, it's very funny, uh, Walter, uh, but you get a big laugh. It's a cheap laugh. And then we don't get them back for another five or ten minutes because we broke the rules with them. The play didn't have that until that moment. Mm -hmm. And he said, don't do it again. So for six weeks out of town, he got the same note every day. And every day 
he begged off and said, oh, I'm sorry, Mike, it, it slipped out. And then he'd say, I, once he said, I don't, maybe I'm not a good enough actor to do that line. And it was all bullshit, you know. It just, <laughs> he just would not give up that joke. Wow. The joke is he's supposed to look at heaven and speak to God. Mm-hmm. Why doesn't he hear me? I know I'm talking. I recognize my voice. <laughs> but he's talked to the fat lady in the front row. And it was more <laughs> funny. And it was funny, but it's not right for the play. Yeah. So after ha- getting that note all those times, Mike would keep changing it in a way to make it funny. And finally, it was just reduced to like the last day before we opened in New York. He said, well, we have nothing to do. We were a big hit in Washington. We got rave reviews. Just uh, Let's just do exits and entrances in case the stage now has one step up and one step down. Just going in and out the doors with no acting. Uh, this is uh, So I have no notes for you. Oh, Walter, <laughs> I had an idea. He says... Uh, you know the line, uh, I recognize my own voice. Instead of doing it um, instead of doing it to God, why don't you pick out a fat lady in the front row <laughs> and say it to them? I think you get a big laugh. Is his way of saying screw you. Yeah. Wow. Because he never listened to him and he never would. I, I was really doing it. I was, I, I was really envious of you getting to work with two of my idols, Mike Nichols, because you immediately respect his comedy notes, I'm sure, because nobody funnier. And also Neil Simon, to me, is one of the greatest writers in the history of Broadway. It must have been, as a comedian that you were, it must have been really a treat to be able to say his words. Oh, that was that show was more fun than anything you can imagine, because somehow Neil Simon writes it so the straight lines the setup lines are also funny yeah because it's written in his the rhythm you know mm-hmm. he's the king of rhythm he wrote as many plays as Shakespeare I think mm-hmm. and in England they used to often call him he's the Shakespeare our current time. he had four shows on Broadway simultaneously at one time which is unbelievable one was the odd couple yeah yeah the other one was barefoot in the park mm-hmm. uh, Another one was off Broadway, and he kept winning Tonys. There were four plays running wow. uh, at the same time, and uh, Barefoot in the Park was one, and the next one was uh, Odd Couple. And I forget the names. There was one called The Knack, an off Broadway show, but every, he won prizes for everything. Mm-hmm. Tell, I'll tell, tell you something. Yeah, he won said to me. Uh, it's very funny, but it doesn't mean he tries to be funny in every moment mm-hmm. in every in everyday life. Mm-hmm. Sometimes. But uh, he said two things to me where I thought were brilliant. We're walking along the street and we see a storefront. That's one of the kind that tells you what's in there, but a piece of paper, scotch tape. In the thing. It's almost like going out of sale, a little storefront. Mm-hmm. And it had a piece of paper there, scotch taped up. It says, Kati Hurado. No, it said, Karate Judo. <laughs> and he said, didn't, didn't she marry Ernest Borgnine? <laughs> and her name, Kati Hurado, Hurati Hudo. Hilarious. Tell, tell the, your Lin-Manuel story when you're backstage with Winnie, because I, I love this story. Well, it used to be you went to the dressing rooms with the stars. Uh, a few years back, six or eight years back, they started doing it another way. People would people would love the actor would complain they have to go four flights up you know to the dressing room, so you gathered on stage all the fans that came backstage maybe there's eight or ten or twelve or fifteen, and they're all just mingling and your star's there so you talk to that one, so my wife has talked to Lynn Manuel who she had known through uh, Stephen Schwartz uh, with whom she wrote Wicked, mm-hmm. so she knew him socially a little bit. So I'm standing off in the back because, you know, I'm going to intrude in their conversation. Then he comes over and he sees me over in the background. He says, oh, my God, Paul Dooley. She says, yeah, it's my husband. Oh, geez, I didn't know that. So now we're talking and he's very complimentary about me and I am about him. Then he says, well, I got a, I got some friends there. I have to say goodbye. And he goes to another place. Then he says in parting, Paul Dooley, you've made my day. And as we left, my wife said he got um, something like 12 Tony nominations that day, but he made his day. Yeah. <laughs> you made his day. Wow. In what day? That's beautiful. But he's the nicest guy in the world. Wow, what a gifted man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I, I uh, 
I loved because you became a clown as I guess a part-time job later. In I, your life. I couldn't join SAG Equity or AFTRA, the unions, so I had to make a living. I did children's theater, and uh, and the lady who hired us paid five actors five dollars a performance and charged a hundred dollars to the school for having written it or adapted it. And I said, "Well, I have a few skills. I can do magic and juggling." And uh, in in college, I'd done a little clowning around. So I put together a show, could sell for $45 for an hour, got a partner who would be my straight man, and I stretched it out to uh, to making an hour show. <laughs> and uh, you can't stretch a magic act out that long or clown. It needs some help, so he'd play the guitar and sing a song. Mm -hmm. But the kids never liked that that much, because he wasn't—he he was okay, but he wasn't really—he was not really funny or anything. But I—I uh, uh, <laughs> uh, I learned from doing children's theater that the kid be often kids would often be bored with the play, sitting still. You know, they're seven, eight, nine, whatever it is. And they don't only perked their ears up when they saw actor A sneaking up on actor B. Mm -hmm. Then that made their day. Look out, look out. <laughs> or they'd laugh. And then the actor could stretch that out, especially this actor, milking it, they call. <laughs> so when the kid said, look behind you, I, I wouldn't look behind me, I'd look over there, and then he'd be over here. <laughs> and then everywhere I went, he wasn't there, and we worked it out together. Then I used to shake the curtain, and they knew something was up, and yeah. that's the first. And then I would open the centerfold curtain and stick out my hand with a white glove on it and wave at them. <laughs> I was milking it by degree in small increments, and then I would uh, open the curtain and go like this. <laughs> and then I, oh, before that, I would put my foot out with a big shoe so that you build up to it. And... Uh, He's not he's not aware of it apparently. He's not supposed to be. It's like between you and the kids. Around. He goes left to look for me and I'll go there and peek out and wave. I can't believe I stretched it out with like ten different <laughs> little things. One for then I got an idea. My big foot came out, my big shoe, and uh, I got an idea and I got a broom handle and uh, took off the broom part and put the big shoe attached with glue. So the second time I put my foot out, I I took the broom handle and raised it up about eight feet, and it looked like my body went with it. Oh. They saw. Now the shoe goes whoa up about eight feet in the centerfold, and they loved that. So I, I I got about six or eight minutes out of all stuff just doing mime and sneaking up. You 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 and let's talk about mime and talk about being able to entertain kids without using words. Your favorite performers and the pivotal performers in your life were the silence. Uh, Buster Keaton, Charlie Chaplin, not so much Harold Lloyd, but W.C. Fields, who's one of my favorites. And these people... Harry Lang, the less known comedian, but he's also... Yes. And, uh, and you learned how universal the physicality of comedy can be, even if you don't know the language, and use yeah. that in your later work, being able to communicate with your body as well as your mouth. Yeah, I love that idea. I, uh, I'll tell you a little quick anecdote. Uh, Barbara Harris was a very insecure actor, but one of the most famous improvisers in Second City. But she was very insecure, so uh, sometimes she wouldn't follow the rules of improv, which are listen and agree, always agree with your partner. Mm -hmm. Never have an argument on improv. You just help each other build a scene. Listen and agree. So we appeared on stage, we said to the audience, who are we? Give us our characters. They said, all right, you're the wife and you be the husband. I said, anything special about us? Well, she works, you stay at home. Okay, she left the stage. I thought she'll make an entrance in a minute. I uh, went over in, in pantomime, turned on the faucets, washed my hands, you know, turned off the faucets, got a towel, dried my hands. She didn't come in. I got a mixing bowl. I broke some eggs in it, and she still didn't come in. And I'm making 
mixing the eggs like that, you know, because I love mime and I was delighted I could just keep going forever. <laughs> and uh, did a lot of stuff, all the mime stuff I could, looking in cabinets below. But finally, I uh, decided I'd pour these eggs into a skillet, turn on the gas, you know. I could have gone forever. I love mime. And uh, so now I'm at the stove and I apparently have the eggs in the skillet and I'm I'm a movement making this kind of move that you might make to keep the eggs from sticking to the pan. Mm-hmm. Finally, she comes on stage. She said, what are you doing? I said, I thought I'd scramble some eggs. And she said, in a tennis racket? <laughs> now, the audience laughs because they're surprised. But this, that's not what you do in Second City. You make it hard. <laughs> not only pull the rug out from the other actor, you pull the rug out from the audience's sensibilities. That's a Walter Matthau moment. Yeah, that is it. a Walter Matthau moment, but funny. Yeah. In other words, if you open a cabinet, they'll believe you if you believe you. And they go along with it. They, they enjoy doing it. So just because I'm an improviser and didn't want to look foolish with her stupid laugh, when she said that in a tennis racket, I said, no wonder the eggs are falling th- into the fire. <laughs> there you go. I was just save my ass and get a maybe a bigger laugh. Well, you gave her a yes and. Well, what, what, uh, one of the things that I, I just... Uh, love to talk to performers about who are of that era are the people that cut their teeth in the village. And you as a comic got to work at Upstairs at the Duplex with people like George Siegel and Woody Allen and Joan Rivers. Just paint me a picture of that environment. It, it just seems like, wow, what a great time to be starting. Nowadays, when you get a shot in a, in a comedy club, you're sometimes given 15 minutes. But then she'd have about eight people on the run on the bill, and uh, Jan Wallman was her name, the hostess, and uh, and she would say, "You each have five minutes." Well, Woody uh, Woody Allen was there, and his manager Jack Rollins uh, told Woody, he "said You have to be a performer." He said, "I don't want to perform. I'm too be too nervous up there. You can tell by his style." He's been nervous, you know, he's insecure. That's his picture of himself. And he said, uh, here's the thing. When you read me your what you wrote in my office, it's hilarious. But if I hand that to some other comic without your style, without your voice, without your look, it's not funny when he does it. It's only funny when you do it. So he convinced him he should try to be an actor. You may even get to be in shows all by yourself, you know, might, uh, maybe a play, maybe a film. And he was a very smart, the, the most famous manager in New York because he had Mike and Elaine and he, mm-hmm. Dick Cavity always had the greatest taste. So I was backstage once when Woody was on the bill and there's a running order. There are eight performers and George Siegel was there playing a banjo. And um, Peter Bonners was there doing pantomime. And Joan Rivers was there doing five minutes. But Woody would go to somebody and say, "What? where are you on the rundown? And I said, I think I'm on third. I'm next. And he'd say, oh, I don't want to go on. I'm fourth, but I don't want to be there. He said, and he goes to someone else, where are you? I'm come on seventh. And he said, yeah, I'm supposed to be. Let me, could, would you trade pretty soon? He pushes himself out till he only comes on at the last performer because he oh, don't want to go on at all. Wow. Uh, I remember one joke from that time. He said, Norman Mailer wrote this book. I think it's Norman Mailer, but it was called The White Negro. And I saw it. I had a dream that night. It's my, the only joke I remember from Woody Allen from those years ago. He said, uh, uh, I had a dream last night. And I dreamed I was this white Negro. But unfortunately, I was this redheaded, freckled, uh, insecure Jew. <laughs> <laughs> So it didn't work out too well. So he made a painted a picture of who he even more better words that, but that's part of it. Redheaded, freckled, insecure Jew. What a time. You also worked at uh your village vanguard? I was a maitre d and oh. I got to be there uh five bucks a night. I'd tell people sit over there. <laughs> maitre d is a fancy name for say there's your table. <laughs> It's in the basement. Very famous club. It's still yeah. there. And yeah. It's over 100 years old. It began as a folk room. Just mm-hmm. uh, uh, folk stuff in the village. But I got to see Mike and Lane their first night in New York. Yikes. 
because Jack Rollins, their manager, brought them there to look at them. He'd only heard about them. They were they left uh, they left the improvisation in Chicago, went down to St. Louis, and tried something as a team. He heard about them. He brought them to New York and showed them off at the Village Vanguard. But I, my my friends would say, "You mean you can watch Miles Davis and Coltrane and and all these famous musicians, all of them, Thelonious Monk, uh, for free?" I said, "No, I get to see Lenny Bruce and Orson Bean and hmm. Professor Irwin Corey for free, and I saw this team go Mike and Lane the other night for free." And uh, they couldn't believe it, but they were they were all looking to Miles Davis, you know. Wow. Uh, Miles uh, didn't like white people, mm-hmm. and I can understand why. <laughs> and he did his act. He did his act with his back to the audience. Yeah. Yeah. The Coltrane, they would all sort of turn away from the audience. Thelonious Monk would uh, be at the piano, but he would the piano set in a circle. He didn't see the audience. They were they were just they didn't mind being observed, but they're not going to play it through. Or or Walter yeah. Matthau was upstaging them. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you hope Walter that Matthau's folks... upstaging God right now? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So what do you hope that folks get from your book? Um. Well, uh, I like the I, I like the idea that my my story and its ins and outs, and there's so many different things that people used to say, you've had a really interesting life. Why don't you write a book? Mm-hmm. And I said, if I wrote a book, I wouldn't be there when they laughed at it. Because uh, I would write point, a funny good book. Good point. So I did a one-man show, and it, in the pandemic, I said, maybe I'll just uh, expand the one-man show into a book. And, but I didn't know for six months if I could find a publisher. Like, you know, who am I? Not a known author. But then a friend of mine told me about uh, Plaza Books, who specialize in show business, you know, theater, film, and all that. And that's who published it. But uh, I just did it to keep busy in the pandemic, you yeah, know. Yeah. But uh, I thought sharing the the uh, kind of different things I did in one career, you know. First, I was a hit in commercials for about 15 years. I didn't need film or television or anything. Then I met Robert Altman and then got into films. Mm-hmm. Then anybody who knew me and on the West Coast would think of me as a film actor. He gave me, uh, you know, the license to be a known actor in films, which I'd never done before. So once I did that, other people would hire me, and Breaking Away is the best movie I ever made. And uh, that also gave me a, a good place in the business. People who loved that film would then hire me to do other things. But I've been a dad in almost everything. But I, well, I'm sharing the idea of going so many ways Loving vaudeville, Buster Keaton, and I studied vaudeville even though I was never alive for it. I mean, uh, you're you're a man who's taken your collection of talents and gifts and sort of packaged them, and and you're also very fluid. You can you know you can go and 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 do and be what's necessary you know in your life, and and that's a gift as well. Is uh, you know knowing how to improvise with what life throws at you. And you're Absolutely. also a talented uh, artist. You could have easily gone on to have a career as a... I wanted to be a cartoonist right, first. Right, right. And then I learned to juggle. Then I wanted to learn how to juggle funny. <laughs> how to juggle funny. I wanted to do magic funny. <laughs> uh, yeah, so you had your... I, the funny thing is when I started doing films, very often I've done more dramatic roles in film than I have comedy roles. And the only real stretch of me is playing Wimpy and Popeye. Because mm-hmm. because the Jules Pfeiffer wanted me to play that part. Don't you and feel again, though that comics can play uh, serious, but serious can't play funny if they're not funny? You're absolutely right. There's an old line that says that dying is hard. What is it? What is the line about? Oh yeah. Uh, dying is easy. Comedy is hard. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Comedy is higher harder than drama, but yeah. people don't think so. The people who hand out prizes in Hollywood don't think that. Right. You rarely. Oscar for a comedy role. No, right. right. Jack Lemon had to play a drunk to get a comedy role. Right. But like <laughs> I mean, you, get, you and Carol, you and Carol Burnett have shown us that you know funny people can be very very effective with dramatic yeah. scripts. Well, right. actually, it's there's a lot of skills involved with comedy. Yeah. And you can utilize that in dramatics mm. too. 
I, uh, the first movie I did was called Wedding for Robert Altman, but I went into it kicking and screaming because it was a straight, kind of a straight role, Father of the Bride, who was a cranky kind of guy. Then the first time I saw dailies, and Altman was famous for letting his actors see the dailies. Mm-hmm. Most produ- most directors won't. They don't want you to be there listening to what they talk about you. They're saying, look how big her nose looks. Can't you change the light? <laughs> they want to be, they're sitting next to him as, as the, as the uh, lighting guy, or the DP, or maybe somebody from wardrobe, but they're the guys in the hang around the director. He wants to be free to say things, you know. Can't you light her so we don't see how big her nose is, you know? <laughs> right, right. Or, right. or do this, we don't want to see her double chin. Oh, goodness. Okay. And they don't want the actress to hear all this, but yeah, Bob didn't care. I don't want to go to the Daily, so I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> Robert Altman, he let everybody come, and it was a big festival. Yeah. They all loved it. Wow. We also brought actors in on the first day of the picture and didn't let them go home until the last day of the picture. Whereas if you have three scenes, you come in, shoot them mm-hmm. out, shoot them out, then you can go home. They don't have to pay your per diem and salary. But he wanted everybody to stay throughout the movie. He wanted- I said, why is that, Bob? He says, I don't know. Maybe I want to put you in the scene at the end. Uh... But you're gone. So he liked you hanging out on the set. Right. And often he would utilize you. So he saw it as a company uh, family that we do this together. All right, yeah, we're gonna I, we're gonna wrap up today. I, I just want to highly recommend that this book. It's it's a beautiful book. Um, the pandemic is almost worth it for to get this book out of you, Paul. Because <laughs> wow, you you have so much to share. It, it, there's just so much beauty in your story and and so much to learn. And I, I just want to thank you so much for joining us and for writing writing the book. The book is called uh, Movie Dad by Paul Dooley. And I'm going to read. And it can be found on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Yep, and at Paul PaulDooleyActor.com, I believe is is the website. Fritz, yeah. uh, we don't have a sponsor yet, Paul. So what we do is we kind of uh, give a shout out to some of our favorite charities, so we can help people help people. Go ahead, Fritz. All right. Well, thank you. Anybody who lives in Southern California would love to know what they could do to help with the homeless crisis. It affects every neighborhood, every walk of life. And you can help, I'm here to tell you. I'd love you to Google Shelter Partnership or go to shelterpartnership.org. I've been involved with them for 30 years. I'm going to write that down. Uh, I, I appreciate it. They, they are an organization that was designed to work throughout Los Angeles County to help develop housing and resources for the homeless. We operate the S. Mark Taper Forum Resource Bank. It's a huge warehouse where we take in large donations of non-perishable goods and distribute them to over 250 homeless shelters in the L.A. area. For instance, a major corporation like Procter & Gamble may have pallets of products that they donate, which are perfectly viable products. They just are overstocked or they're outdated packaging, and they might have five or six pallets of diapers or toiletries or other basic necessities, hundreds, maybe thousands of individual items. They deliver them to our warehouse. We distribute them to homeless facilities throughout Southern California. You can learn more about us, or more importantly, make a donation to help us continue our work at shelterpartnership.org. Thank you very much. And here are your closing credits. Thank you so much for joining us. We would love to continue this conversation with you on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at MediaPathPod, and on Facebook, where our show page is MediaPathPodcast, and our Facebook group is called MediaPath with Fritz and Wheezy Podcast Community. You can find full video podcast episodes loaded with bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, MediaPathPodcast. You can write to us at MediaPathPodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy this show, please give us a nice rating on Apple Podcasts and talk about us favorably, if you would, on social media. You can sign up for our saucy rag of a newsletter at mediapathpodcast.com. And we want to thank our wonderful guest, Paul Dooley. Our team includes Dina Friedman, John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason Brown, Garrett Arch, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I'm Louise Palanker here with Fritz Coleman and Paul Dooley. Be well and wise, and we will see you along the media path. Thomas is going to tell you exactly when to smile.